Hey there, everyone. Welcome again to the Tech Emergence Podcast, where we bring to you the intersection of technology and psychology. We've gonna, done a good number of interviews recently in the domain of neuroscience, and today I'm lucky enough to have a professor from Harvard, Dr. Rudolf uh, Tanzi, is uh, Kennedy Professor of Neurology at Harvard University, in addition to being the Vice Chair of Neurology at Mass General Hospital, right up in Boston, and today we're going to be speaking about the past and future of neurology as a field. Dr. Tanzi, how are you? Good, thank you. Happy to be here. Fantastic. Yeah, glad to have you on. You know, I, I've we've had a, a number of folks from Shucks, Yale, Duke, and all over the place on neuroscience in just the last two months or so, um, and and. I'm always interested in the in the perspectives of the folks that are deepest in the field as to where they've seen the biggest leaps. Because I think, you know, us who are surfing around on Wired.com or guys like myself that have, you know, 20 different emerging technology fields to keep up with may or may not really have an accurate finger on the pulse of, of kind of where the major jumps have been in individual fields. For you, you know, having been in neuroscience for quite some time, in the last decade or so, where have you seen sort of the most meaningful jumps and leaps in, in, in neuroscience as an actual uh, field of research? Well, in my own field of Alzheimer's disease, I think, you know, thanks to genetics, and uh, I run what's called the Alzheimer's Genome Project. Yep. Um, you know, we've identified so many different genes now for Alzheimer's, and, you know, my lab discovered the first genes for Alzheimer's back in the 80s and 90s, and we're discovering more of them every, every month. And they have really taught us what goes wrong with the brain as we get older. And, you know, to a large extent, our lifespan has outpaced our health span, whether it's, um, you know, with resistance to cancer or heart disease or diabetes or stroke. But it's also, in particular, our brain health span has been far outpaced by how, we, how, how long we live. Huh. And that's a big issue. And, 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 you know, one of the main threats to getting older is Alzheimer's and Right now, lifespan is about 80 years old, and 85 is half the population that have this disease. And so it's a real issue, especially with 74 million baby boomers heading toward risky. So yes. Think, you know, we have to first fix problems, right? So my main, the main emphasis of my work is to try to eradicate Alzheimer's uh, just before I get it. Um, <laughs> yes, that, that would be, that'd be good timing for sure. Yeah, I'm working against the clock. Yep. So, you know, and as a geneticist, I think if we all live long enough, maybe some people have it, would have to live to 120. But if we all live long enough, we'd probably get this disease. So I think about genetics and lifestyle dictating when you get the disease, not whether. Um, and the question is, will you get it in the span of a normal you know, lifetime? Huh, so, so that's number one. Wow. And, 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 you know, and then in studying Alzheimer's, it, 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 you know, what happens in an Alzheimer's patient is they lose their sense of self. So when you study Alzheimer's, you really get to think about what is self. And yeah. I delved into that question with my colleague Deepak Chopra when we wrote Superbrain, and what really is self, and how does self relate to the brain and mind. And so that's the other side of the coin. And I think there have been great advances there as well. And the interface of that is brain mapping in the connectome. And as we map the brain, will we really discover the self or just the map that gets us to the self as a different entity. Yeah. So that's the thoughts that, you know, go through my head when I'm taking a shot. Interesting. You know, in, in terms of um, the self and the understanding thereof, of, of course, you know, I've, I've actually I gave a talk not all that long ago to a, 
a small group at Brown that was sort of interested in brain-machine interface because uh, we do a lot of research with those folks, so I get to kind of keep up to snuff on, on that as one of my favorite technologies. And, uh, and man, I mean, you know, in terms of losing the self, losing, you know, memories and, and an understanding of sort of the people and places and, and kind of who you are, in terms of a, a scientific grasp of, of, you know, what the self is comprised of and what the self seems to be, has neurology pointed to anything other than what we think we sort of know? Well, you know, my memories are kind of myself, and what I know about me in terms of my past, uh, you know, that's my myself. My ability to relate to people is myself. Is it is it go deeper than that in terms of the hard science of what we learned about the origins and kind of composites of the self itself? Well, you know, I mean, if you take a neuroscientist view of uh, yeah, most neuroscientists and a reductionist way would say the self is simply produced by the output of the brain. Um, and you can map the brain and you can try to get the brain to control things, you know, directly. Like, you know, you probably know the work of Lee Hopper, who's both here at Mass General and at Brown and doing brain, the brain gates. Yep, okay, yep. Yeah, very familiar with brain gates work. Yeah, and that's me, Dr. Heath and I department here, and also a faculty member from Amazing Guy. Yep. So, a neuroscientist side would say, you know, whether it's a bacterium in a petri dish, where it's a very, you know, simple universe that it lives in, attraction and repulsion. I'm, I'm repulsed by toxins, I'm attracted to things that make me think I'm going to eat or meet. And, and then that keeps going up the evolutionary ladder as there's more and more interaction, more. Um, more integration of life forms. You take a human that's mostly bacteria, 10 to 1 bacterial cells and mammalian cells, with big colonies, and, uh, and, and we become much more sophisticated, and we have things like fight or flight, fears and desires. We have um, um, intellect. We have uh, a frontal cortex that allows us to control our fears from becoming phobias or desires and becoming addictions. Yes. Uh, and we're still on our way. We're still on a vector from bacteria to us to whatever else is going to happen. It's more information self-organizing into higher and higher order assemblies of consciousness. Um, and the question is, in terms of the self, is the self the map of the brain that maps out those interactions, or is it something else? Is it consciousness yeah. that is interpreted by the brain, where the brain is part of consciousness as well. So I like to ask people this question, and I want to ask you this question. Yeah. Okay. Do you believe that the world is actually made of material things, like material trinkets floating around in this big magical house called the universe? Um, do, so is that a yes or no question? Yeah. All right. Well, in, in frankness... Um, I, I have to stay agnostic with you on this one uh, because I, I haven't escaped Hume's fork, uh, so I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I don't let myself really get concretely yes about you know the wood floor underneath my feet right now. Never mind sort of the literal constituents of atomic particles and, and matter. So I, I'm pretty agnostic. If I were to guess, though, if I were to take a swing at the dark, um, I'd go with a nay. I'd say no. Five hundred years from now, they'll look back at us and say they actually believed back then. Even though there was a whole, you know, in the 1900s, this thing came up called quantum physics, 
and they showed wave theory and they showed what was really going on, still, in the next century, 99.999% of people believe that there's this big giant house called the universe and it has walls and it ends and it begins, and inside there's these material things floating around, particles, everything up the planets and galaxies. Mm -hmm. Now, does that does that tie into your notion of the self and consciousness at all, in terms of an yeah. understanding? Oh, okay, and yeah, go go a little bit into that because obviously, as a, a thorough neuroscientist, and in, in you know, in addition to having a grasp of physics, I'm curious to see how those those dots connect. So, you, uh, you need a, a, a two level of You need neuroscientists to study in a reductionist way the connections in the brain, how information is interpreted, how interactions are made in the brain. But at the same time, you need to consider that I think there's going to be an ultimate, ultimate realization that the entire existence is simply consciousness. That consciousness, in turn, is awareness as an original entity becoming aware of itself. So if you think about, if you, go, if you think about the universe as pure awareness, and the only thing awareness can do is be aware, and the only thing there is to be aware of is itself. You can think about the you can think about existence as awareness becoming aware of itself, generating consciousness. And the in consciousness you have various orders of assemblies from particles and bosons all the way up to humans, up to planets, up to galaxies and solar systems. That all of these are assemblies within consciousness as opposed to actual real material things that float around in some magical house called the universe. For me, that really solves what David Chalmers calls the hard problem. Of consciousness. Because the hard problem yeah. is only hard if you believe there are hard things, like material. Yeah, yeah. It goes away. Yeah, it, it's curious. and I'm, I'm interested to see where research will kind of carry forward in terms of, um, you know, drawing to the table whatever evidence, marshalling whatever evidence it can, and, in, in, you know, the, 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 the for or against arguments around kind of particles and waves and, and the, the literal constituents of, of the universe that we live in, but it sounds like you kind of have an inkling of where that research will take us. You know, I mean, in my day job, you know, I have to... <laughs> my day job. My, my day job as a neurology guy at Harvard, you know, when I schlep into work every day. Yeah, in your day job, what were you saying? Yeah, my day job, I, I have to uh, accept the model of a material world. Oh, yeah. And interactions to study genes and proteins. I mean, you know, our lab is, has Alzheimer's drugs and trials, and we're one of the leading Alzheimer's genome labs. And, um, you know, but I find that if you come at material and reductionist questions with the open mind that comes from looking at the problem as a non-material problem, one that's in consciousness, you can think more out of the box and, and can come up with answers that are, that are not so derivative and stale. And it's kind of like music. I'm also a musician. And, you know, I like to improvise. I like to play with people who want to just openly improvise and, and especially play non-derivative music and keep pushing the limits to do new things. So I play jazz, I play rock. Um, you know, when I write books, I wrote, you know, I write books with Deepak Chopra. Again, I like to write late at night and push the limits and see how far we can push people to think about a, a universe of pure consciousness. You know, in a book that's actually a self-help book, it's talking about the brain and what the self really is. It's, it's, a, 
it, it frees you to work within a materialist world, but approach it from a world uh, of pure consciousness. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting, yeah. you know. I uh, again, I I wouldn't be nearly academically schooled in, enough to uh, to to lay down, you know, the the hard blacks and whites of my of my own thinking on on kind of the nitty gritty there. But I will say, I, you know, it's 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 in some way easy to see that you know. If if you pretend, you know, of course, again, in your in your day job, a good deal of what you're doing, you got to kind of work within the framework of our current understanding of physics and whatnot. But but it 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 makes sense that being able to think outside of that box, as you would kind of put it, may open up uh, additional ways of understanding the universe and and maybe prompt some good ideas for research that might actually show different kinds of interactions and a different sort of quote unquote stuff that we're all living in and living on. Uh, or living of, when you think about it. Yeah, and it allows you to tap into intuition, right? So the brain is an organ that's bringing you four things. Uh, sensation, um, and images. You can argue an image is a sensation, but I separate them. Feelings and thoughts. And this is, Doc, this is Dan Siegel's idea of six. So your brain's delivering these two. So once you realize that, you realize you're not your brain. Your brain... It's an organ that allows you to realize you're not in your brain, which is a beautiful thing, and that your brain is actually bringing you feelings and thoughts and energy. So, you know, if you see um, a lemon, you say, I see a lemon, and your brain's bringing you the energy of a lemon. Yes. You don't say, I am a lemon, right? No, no, you don't. You don't say, I am a lemon. No. But if somebody throws a lemon at your head, hits you in the nose, and you get angry, you're likely to say that I am angry that you hit me in the nose with a lens. Well, what does your brain do? Your brain, your brain brought you the feeling of anger. Your brain brought you the image of the lemon. Your brain brought you the image of the lemon coming a little too close to your face, hitting <laughs> your nose, and now your brain brings you the feeling of anger. It's just a delivery system. So to say I am angry is as crazy as to say I am a lemon. Got it. Okay, okay. And this is, again, a, a way of thinking about and thinking through um, you know, your experience of yourself in your life, and again, part of your, your work with, with Deepak there. Um, I, I know that, you know, being open-minded and, and, and aiming to see perspectives sort of beyond um, some of the original kind of frameworks and maybe even current frameworks of, of uh, you know, the research world, um, you know, one of the other places where I had actually seen you was, was in a, a, a trailer for a documentary called The Future of Work and Death, where you talked a little bit about, of all things, kind of uploading a human experience or, or potentially uploading, um, you know, a, a, a consciousness or a connectome, so to speak. Um, and, I, and I know that there's a lot of ardent work uh, being done, at least in that direction. There's some people like uh, Randall Kuna, who's uh, very overtly sort of aiming to work away at, at, at uh, mind uploading and, and kind of replicating of a brain. There's the Blue Brain Project and whatever Obama's brain project is called, I think it's maybe just called the brain project, uh, where we're aiming to sort of model and replicate and simulate uh, individual neurons, individual brain sections, individual brain segments, and, and interconnectednesses. Um, in terms of bringing that kind of science to, to the level where we might be able to replicate, um, you know, the, the mental activity of, you know, even a mammal, never mind a, a human, um, do, do you think that that's viable or reasonable within our lifetimes? I mean, you're, you're somebody in this field. I know some folks think, you know, a lot of the futurists like Ray Kurzweil might be a little bit far out with their uh, uh, kind of projections of time, realistic time frames. 
Um, what are your thoughts there as to sort of how reasonable or unreasonable that endeavor actually is, uploading someone's identity or consciousness into uh, another substrate? Well, you know, I mean, a futurist is only as far out as the future they think of. And you have to assume that things will keep um, evolving, that self-organization never stops, you know. So just, you know, just if you think about information generated from interactions, constantly creating higher-order assemblies of, you know, like from a human to a back, from a bacteria to a human. Yes. Okay? Um, the driving principle of self-organization that in our models that we create that include, you know, um, materials and particles and waves, you know, everything tends toward entropy. Everything tends toward just the, the, the resting state, toward yep. low energy state. So this, so I like to think about the driving force of nature as laziness. Huh. Okay. Everything is constantly trying to do the least possible work. And, and look at us. You know, we don't like to work, right? We do things because we love interaction. We love experience. We love to grow. Make sure that we have new interactions. But as we grow ourselves and become more complex beings based on interaction and, and gathering new information, we still always try to tend toward the lowest energy state. And that's the self-organizing now, if you go from there, what our brain is doing is if you have 100 billion neurons making hundreds of trillions of connections, and some people up to a quadrillion, which sounds like a lot, but it's still just a limited number. Yeah, it's still, yeah, it's still finite. Yeah. So in the end, you basically have a map. You have a neural network map. You have redundancy in the map. You have, you know, all learning is based on association. Whenever you learn something new, you make a new synapse that strengthens an old one. And, um, and connects with learning is always based on association from the day, from, from, from when you're in the womb and you're, you have the most primitive brain, you're building a foundation to which you keep associating your experiences and building a neural network. So in the end, you have just a big neural network. So if someone tells me that they don't think that someday, 500 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, I don't know what, we couldn't somehow copy a neural network um, into a very complex computer system that allows it to also capture information the same way. Well, I think it's unreasonable. I think everything this is going to happen at some point. So that becomes uploaded. Ah, interesting. Like, yeah, and yeah. not not every neuroscientist, I suppose. Uh, I, I, from my experiences, maybe even open to thinking that far out, or, or sort of open to considering the reasonableness. Of, of that, but in, in your eyes, it sounds like so long as we're alive and around, it's somewhat inevitable at some point we'll get there. Yeah, I mean, look, the average Neanderthal was afraid to count the six, and then the ones that count the ten get better, right? And yep. So it's not, it's not different now, it's just how far are you willing to go? You have to detach. The, big, the, the key to all of this is to have a level of enthusiasm and, and and devotion to what you're doing is unmatched, yet you're detached. 
So, so for you, you know, whether it's, you think somewhere maybe, I mean, and again, we're really ballpark and I'm, I'm not like going to quote you on this, but I'm just curious to your feelings about it and your inkling as someone who's obviously well-informed here, um, a one to 500 years-ish potentially modeling of a human mind and some additional substrate, or, or do you feel like a more aggressive timetable is even reasonable? Got it. Okay. But here's the big question. Yeah. Now, let's say somebody takes my neural network right now and they're able to create some, you know, silico organic hybrid system and have all my connections saved up. Yep. Firing away at each other, right? The question would be um, if you, if you, will that really be a copy of? Yeah. Minus, minus yeah. So, so in other words, if the connections are happening, it, is it including the the kind of spark of volition or origin of consciousness that that may very particularly really be your individual awareness? Would it still have that? Is what you're asking? But you and I and I I and so this was the other part. I don't know if this came across in the snippets of. Documentary yep. online, but what I said after I talked about feeling that you would have the technology to upload was that it would be like having a radio, but there's no music being transmitted. Huh, curious. Ready to, ready to bring you Mozart, but Mozart isn't home. Got it. Okay, okay. So, so you you feel that we'll have to have a. Uh, more deeper and potentially thorough understanding of of actual the, the the actual constituents of awareness as something outside of just the zapping in between individual cells. Your feeling is that that by itself is not going to bring uh, Doctor Tansy to life in the computer. No. Okay. I, think I don't. I don't know what you want to call it. It's soul. Yeah. Yeah. However you want to go with it. Yep. It's not the entirety of the self and the awareness. Got it. Okay. And it's interesting. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't think any of us do in, in the most concrete and tangible ways. But it's just interesting to know that even as a, a, a neurologist and neuroscientist that that, uh, that is still your inkling about the kind of the origins of consciousness. There's just, just so many darn theories, but it's it's interesting to hear that. Dr. Tansy, I, I had, just because you had mentioned it, I wanted to spice in this one last question as we close. I really do appreciate your time. This has been a, a blast to glean your perspective. And you mentioned this a few times. You had talked about, you know, bacteria to multi-celled organisms to monkeys and people and, and whatever. You had said you know, maybe once or twice, whatever's next. Um... In terms of whatever's next, uh, you know, I, I think that being open-minded, you know, considering how long humans have been here, uh, it, it seems unreasonable to suppose that we're sort of the end of self-organization and the hierarchy thereof, uh, the, the, the end of, you know, thought coming to know itself in the kind of Aristotelian sense of, of uh, you know, godliness or what have you. I mean, in, in your own conception, 
you know, do you have any idea of what sort of next might mean? Is next biological evolution? Is next artificial intelligence? Um, you know, universe is, is sort of built on, 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 or, you know, the natural state, as you had mentioned of nature being kind of laziness for lack of better terms. Um, what, uh, you know, what might be beyond us in your own mind? Most people don't even bring that up. I think it's a very reasonable supposition. I'm curious as to your thoughts. As we evolve our nervous system in the same vectorial direction from bacteria to yeast to fly to mouse to human, our model of the universe will also change. Your universe is species specific. Yeah. The universe is just as valid as ours. Yep. We create the universe with, to the limits of our own nervous system. Awareness, yep. Yeah. It's going to look amazing compared to now, but, but compared to the universe that they live in then and they're going to create, they're still going to seem to have the same limitations that we have now. And the same limitations that poor little bugs have in the future, they stand, you know, I'm just swimming around and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find food and yeah. enough energy to divide. You know, so I mean, the universe, our, our model of the universe and what we can imagine will, will always Yeah, because it'll again, as you had mentioned, it'll the the boundaries will be aware, the comprehension of sort of what's going on, at least on some level, will will be happening, and normal will be different, but in some sense still normal. Do do you see that transition of those supermen in some sense as being you know a created artificial intelligence, as being a biologically enhanced human intelligence of the future, you know, millennia, uh, a technologically enhanced consciousness of the future millennia? In terms of those steps forward, is it just going to be smaller iPhones uh, and, and like, better neuroscientists? What do you think are more likely to sort of be the actual enhancements of sentience itself? No, I'm, I'm thinking way out there. So like, yeah, let's do it. I, I mean, let's do, I'm interested. I mean, from a, neuro, a neuroscientist perspective, this is a blast for me. Oh, fantastic. Well, congratulations. I actually did not know that until now, so great. Well, the coolest, and this is from our work on Alzheimer's disease, the coolest thing was I got to go to the Time 100 Gala and I got to meet Christopher Nolan and, and talk about Interstellar and, you know, his movies Interstellar and such. Yep. And we talked about this and, you know, and this idea of, of, of beings in the future who are able to travel back in time to interact with us. I, I, I think that's perfectly possible. Our future beings will be able to transverse time, and it won't be such a big deal for them because the universe that they're going to be modeling and living in is going to be so much vaster than ours that even transversing time is going to seem like kind of like, well, where do we go next? There's yeah. Always be, there's always going to be a feeling of where, where we go next because the universe we create is always going to be it's going to be exponentially vaster than what we can actually do. So they look like Superman to us, but to themselves, they just like, look like another thing. And, and, 
happens over and over and over again because the nervous system will become more and more complex and self-organizes based on the amount of information, integration, the college information generated, interactions, more and more. Got it. So, and you see those interactions and more and more interactions happening through just our, our, our evolved biology, or do you potentially also see that from, you know, the addition of, I mean, speaking of Alzheimer's, we're working away on, on, uh, you know, uh, substrates that can house and help us keep memory, uh, for, for, for people who have, um, you know, degenerative, uh, neurological conditions, you know, will, will there potentially be an interplay of such tools with the brain in addition to our kind of physiological, genetic, neurological, biological evolution, um, do, do you see the, the kind of technology integration being part of what lets us leap into those further realms of science and experience of the universe? Or do you see, or do you see really biology and kind of the, the spark of the soul and consciousness as kind of being really where the origin of that, that further awareness might be? It's biology. Huh. You know, in super brains, we learn about neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity allows us to remodel our neural network. Yeah meaning that, that we model the universe that we create with our brain that we live in. Uh, the new book we just wrote, it's out coming out this fall, uh, again, the Deepak Chopra. We have a book coming out called Super Genes in November this year, and that book will talk about epigenetics, how despite what, what genes you're born with from your parents, um, gene activity is going to be regulated by your lifestyle, your diet, your choices you make, your thoughts, your words, your feelings. So Interesting. Yeah, so, so it's a combination of, of flexibility and dynamism of your genes and your brain through epigenetics and neuroplasticity that will allow us to continually evolve and become more complex. Got it. Okay. All you need is interaction. Experience and interaction. Never, ever underestimate the need for interaction experiences every day that are new because this is the strategy. Yeah, well, geez, that, that's why that's why I try to. Uh, I hope I can Superman myself by interviewing folks like yourself, Doctor Tansy. This has been a a lot of fun for me. The the reason I asked you about biology is because I know there's folks like Kurzweil who are really you know pessimistic about how quickly we could literally evolve in terms of you know higher and higher orders of of actual experiences of the universe biologically, and might be a, he you know folks like himself might be a little bit more of the belief that augmenting our thinking with you know, technology and silicon, you know, connected to our biology might be a more viable way of expanding our awareness. But I know it sounds as though from your perspective, really biology will be the origins and the key kind of from, from where you're coming from. We will, we will do whatever we have to do. Um, we've already brought in 5,000 species of bacteria to help us become who we are. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't need no stinking silicon. <laughs> I like it. Okay, man. Well, you know, I, I get I get perspectives from every from every uh, you know uh, discipline and, and folks at, at all these great research institutions, and it's fantastic to to hear your perspective and and the capacity for biology alone to really allow us to to transcend. Doctor Tansy, I know we went a little bit overboard. I had to ask you that last question. I really appreciate you being here. If people want to learn more from you. Uh, where would they go on the web to find you? I know Super Brain is the book. You're coming out with another one. What else could they go and, and pick up? Well, Super Genes is coming out. There's Super Brain's out there. I mean, I don't really have a, a, a website or a blog or anything, but yep. there's tons of stuff I, I, you know, I just write for 
you know, I mean, I have about 500 publications in the science world, but I also write a lot of pieces with uh, other folks on the Huffington Post. And, um, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, I don't really have one. Yeah, no, you're, you're a, you're a Googleable guy though, which is good if you're out on Huffington and everything else. Yep. So yes, I, I, I like that. I, I, I consider myself eminently Googleable. <laughs> An eminently Googleable man. Voted 100 most influential people by Time Magazine and eminently Googleable man, Dr. Tansy. Well, Dr. Tansy, uh, thank you for that. Hopefully folks who are more interested in you will, uh, will do just that and go ahead and Google you. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you again so much for your time. You're very welcome. And don't ever worry about going overboard because otherwise you won't learn how to swim. I like it. <laughs> Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, and be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Uh, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week.